Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 18th of February, 2013, and our special guest is Alan November. The book is Who Owns the Learning? Alan, thanks for being here. Yeah, Steve, I can hardly hear you. I don't know if that's at my end. So you in the chat, can you tell us how we're doing audio-wise? Yeah, your voice better. is very soft. Um, but turning up I my microphone. Hello. Steve is soft. That's interesting. I'm showing full volume registering on my controls. I apologize. I don't know why that. Would oh, be it's better. it just got good. It, it's okay. you're good to go now. That may be an eliminated issue. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for their forms of support. Coming up, we have lots of really fun peer-to-peer -peer learning conferences, all free this year. The School Leadership Summit is March 28th. Thanks to TCAL for hosting that. Uh, should be a, a terrific session. We're still taking proposals to speak. Uh, these are highly inclusive events. Uh, we encourage everybody to submit to present. Coming up at ISTE, we have our full set of ISTE Unplugged events after seven years. Still going strong. Our Saturday all-day unconference is going to be called Hack Education this year. Audrey Waters is going to co-lead that. Uh, thanks to Hewlett Packard, we're going to have a Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Plus virtual conference worldwide in July. The Future of Libraries conference is in October, and the Mothership, the Global Education Conference, will be in November again. Thanks to all of the sponsors who support these free events, and hopefully you'll be able to attend or participate in one. I think you'll enjoy it. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow, Paul Thomas talks about poverty and the corporate takeover of education. Gina Bianchini then talks about Mighty Bell again and how to run a virtual book club. That's on Wednesday. Maurice Gibbons on self-directed learning on Thursday, and Michael Fullen on education reform and the change process on Friday. That's at an earlier time. Do check it in case you want to attend. New on this list, um, John Hattie coming on, Madeline Levine on Teach Your Children Well. Um, oh, Elliot Washer and Charles Mojowski on their new book, Leaving to Learn. Peter Gray on his new book, Free to Learn. And then Ernie Turner and Simona David, she's from Romania, are going to talk about improving schools one community at a time. Really fun activities. If you've missed any shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form, as well as MP3. Uh, Laura Grace Walden talked to us about free-range learning. Carol Black on Occupy Your Mind. Stephen Bezruchka on poverty and statistics. Gary Obermeyer on Deming. Anyway, lots more all available if you're interested. This is where you can indicate where you're participating from. Click on the star to the left of the map. It's the second icon down. Double click. And click on the map. Yeah, Alan, you might turn your mic off. We're getting a little bit of feedback. And you can turn it back on when you go talk. Please feel free to put a shout out in the chat to let us know where you're participating from as well. Looks like Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, some Central and South America. It's always fun to know the time and the temperature. So wherever you're listening from, or if you are participating by listening to a recording, thank you for doing so. With uh, 114 people in the room currently, it can be hard to follow the chat. Worth pulling the chat box out. You can do that by double-clicking at the top of the box and dragging it. Or look for the drop-down menu at the top of the chat box and detach the panel. And that will let you um, actually resize the box, and you should be able to see more of the chat. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. Mighty Bell is turning out to be a really terrific way to hold book discussions. Um, the full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina Bianchini, the co-founder of Mighty Bell. She was also the co-founder of Ning, and I did work for Ning for 18 months. Um, so please be aware of that.
personal interest I have, but I think you're going to really like the product. So I promised Alan a chance to actually start the conversation. Alan was unhappy with my blog post about the book. It was intended as a sort of edgy homage to what I think are some of the most powerfully articulated messages around student self-direction, but it wasn't taken that way. So Alan, I'm just going to turn things over to you, and then when you're ready, you can turn it back to me, and I have some good questions for you. And you have to turn your mic back on. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't so concerned until a number of friends called and thought uh, those who had read the book and those who had read your blog post wondered if you had read the book that your your criticisms of uh, for example the the kid you're, you're blaming the media that the kid used Animoto as if Animoto something's wrong with Animoto but it, it's it's not the media. It's what the kid did with Animoto that you just left out of of your criticism. So I wonder. I just wonder if you could explain, Steve. Um, this is coming from a number of friends of mine. Um, why did you, why did you choose to blame the media Animoto when when you never even mentioned what the student did with it? Um, which in the district, if that kid were were on this podcast. I think that student would uh, tear you to pieces, frankly. So I think that's a fair criticism. Um, we've really explored a lot in the interview series as of late the whole idea of uh, agency or student-driven learning within the context of schooling and outside the context of traditional schooling. And to what degree does a student have choice within schooling structure and to what degree are they actually having choice to choose whether or not to be in the structure. So I don't think I was criticizing Animoto. I actually quite like the product. I just did not do a good job of communicating well. The, uh, the interest I have in both what I think is really the best articulation at this point of the, the potential of these technologies to create self-driving opportunities but the degree to which they're still constrained within a traditional school environment. And that's a, I think that's a very interesting question. It was not intended in any way to be dismissive. It was probably just a poor moment in my writing where I was trying to be more flip, and it ended up sounding critical. Well, Steve, it's pretty clear. Your writing's pretty, I think your writing is clear. I, I think you knew what you were writing about. Um, you, you say that I talk about student achievement and ownership learning experience, but it turns out this is part of a description of students making Animoto videos, and you never explain what was in the video. That's like blaming paper uh, or any media for just being a bad tool. And I, I just, I think your writing's clear, Steve. I, I, uh, I, I was just disappointed that the, the criticism of the tool was completely out of context to the content of what the students did. Um, and I'm also confused, frankly, at your statement that it's a great question. Michael West says it's a great question on my book. And uh, but that you, let, let's see if I can find what you said, unless you've, you've taken it out by now, um, that that you found that you had to reread sentences, that you didn't understand sentences in my book. And I wonder if you could explain that. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to. Either, I'd to oh, what I'd love to do is to move yeah. on at an appropriate moment so we give you a chance to actually describe what I think is a terrific book. But uh, the point being that, um, and I don't have the exact quote here in front of me, but there were several places where I sort of underlined this whole idea of student choice or student opportunity for creation that still were in the constraint of the teacher assigning the job. And that's a hu that's huge progress, and I think it's really valuable. At the same time, it's still within this construct sort of, of, of adult-led schooling. It's probably the most progressive. Oh. It, it is a very progressive form of adult-led schooling. But it's still, oh. when you compare it to the kinds of free-range, unschooling, homeschooling conversations we've had, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't explore as fully as I would want to. Now, 
again, <laughs> let's, uh, you know, uh, we can beat me up. I deserve it. But I really want to talk about the content of the book because I think there's so much of value here that's going to be worth describing. Well, Steve, I have, to, I have to wonder if you read the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book starts out with students defining their own problems, even working over the summer, no structured school, um, because they're so motivated with the quality of the work. They own the definition of the learning. They organize their learning. Um, they're, they're working collaboratively, globally. So if, if you're saying that as soon as you walk into a school building, you're confined within its structure, then there's, then there's no path out by starting there. We have to just walk away. I mean, just to help me understand uh, what you mean by confined by the structure. Maybe you could, maybe you could elucidate and, and help, help me get that part. I did love the beginning of the book. And you're clearly a beautiful storyteller. And there are some stories I want to explore here with you. And I do think that, I mean, again, it was the, uh, the, the lovely getting to a certain place. And what I'd like to do is, if we can, let's save that as sort of a final set of things that we investigate. You know, if, if we were to take this beyond sort of traditional schooling, because what I'm afraid is that we're going to miss this opportunity to talk about uh, the, the things that you do, do talk about that are so valuable and important here. Again, not wanting to, def, def, um, to distract from, from your own unhappiness with what I've written and, and my thinking, but I do think it's worth moving on. And are you comfortable with that? Yeah, you and I will have to talk later, Steve. Um, maybe we can write something together that uh, isn't just crossing out old stuff, but a brand new piece. I, I would be happy with that. Okay, good. So I, I love your stories. Uh, and, and you Fire away. We'll start with the story of Gary from Lexington High School and how the technology truly has a chance to shift education. Uh, it feels like that was a really significant moment in your own teaching career, sort of looking at a student who was otherwise would have been classified as not succeeding and recognizing something really valuable. What did you learn from Gary? Well, that was 1982, 3, 1, somewhere in there, before software and before the web. And Gary had uh, broken into this computer lab to learn. And I had started my teaching on an island prison school in Boston Harbor, so I had never had a kid break into school to learn. So it's fascinating to me that, you know, your own criticism of the structure, some kids broke in, and he wanted to be self-directed. He, he wasn't taking a course. He was fascinated by programming. At that time, there were no home computers. The only way you could get to a computer was in school. And when he got caught breaking and entering, because I was running the alternative school at the time, I, I had to go and deliver the discipline. And when I got up there and found out he hadn't stolen anything and had broken anything, he was just there for the love of learning, I, I got all confused at first because I said to punish him, and then I decided, well, do I reward him or do I punish him? And we arranged, as the book explains, we arranged for a computer to go home, and he comes back over the weekend, and everything is done. An entire semester's coursework is, is accomplished. And at a very high level, perfect. In a meeting with teachers uh, who actually ran the, the basic programming class, which was the content he had, he had conquered over the weekend, they, they sorted out that the highest grade they could give him was a C because he didn't come to class. And it didn't matter that he had absolutely excelled, that he was self-directed. It didn't matter that he had done it in a very short time, that he was totally focused and, and totally on task. None of that mattered. The only thing that mattered is he broke a rule, and the rule said, regardless of what you learn, you can only get a C. So at that moment, I realized and I, I'm sure some people would agree, that the structure of school is actually in the way of a certain kind of learner. 
a, a kid like a kid like Gary, who is self-directed. But my roommate at the time was a Harvard Business School professor, and he was their technology guy. So I went home and told him what had happened, and I said, "How did this kid do it?" Because I didn't know anything about computers at that time, and my roommate explained that if you're writing code, you can immediately run it to see if it works or doesn't work. You get immediate feedback. You don't have to wait for a teacher. You know at least if it's not working. And so if you have uh, an ability to stay focused, you can start to uh, sort out which part of the code isn't working on your own. And so I realized that a unique quality technology provides is this immediate feedback to the learner. We can, we can now see that in video games and, and in things like Khan Academy. It's taken, you know, kind of 30 years for this concept to filter through in a productive way. But I was just fascinated that there was this unique quality of immediate feedback and that time and space didn't matter to this kid. He was just in a zone. So I became fascinated by that. And, I arranged to get a computer and studied programming, and here I am. That kid changed my life. So we've talked on this show about technology and its role in changing learning over the course of the last five years. What was really interesting to me was that, that then you tell the Dudley Street barbershop story of renting the space for a yeah. dollar. And that doesn't really have much to do with technology. It's as though the technology opens no. the door to an understanding but it's not necessarily the technology is the only way to get there. Right. No, that's right. The barbershop story came out of another roommate experience. I, I had a roommate at that time who was a medical resident. And uh, one day after I got home from teaching in the local high school, it was Roxbury High School, which was an inner, inner it's gone now, but it was a, victim of desegregation in Boston. That was a very rough school. Um, a student got sick and got in an ambulance, was taken to the hospital, and my roommate saw him. And talking to this kid, found out he's one of my students. When I got home, he said, look, that kid has never really had medical care. And if you're going to be teaching, at least teach kids something useful, like how to get medical care. Because coming on an ambulance could be too late for some of these kids, and that was unnecessary. So my roommate was not happy with, with the situation of, of medical services to the poor, and he wanted me to do something about it. So I, I decided um, that what I was going to do is ask students to go to different hospitals across Boston, clinics, and study, that they were going to gather um, information resources. Now, at the same time, I was able to bid on this barbershop, which was a couple blocks from the school. Long story, but I got the barbershop. And the barbershop was in the, in the understory of one of the largest transportation terminals in Boston called Dudley Station, where buses and subways all came together. Tens of thousands of people per hour poured out of that station. So the barbershop was in a great location to share information with a lot of people. And my students used to go after school and uh, more or less run this nonprofit uh, community service center of handing out medical information to people. And we got the sound system for the subway, and we used to run music like a radio station and give ads for our barbershop so, so that people knew we were there. And yeah, I tell that story. Because it's so unusual. Who's going to get a barber shop in a, in a subway? Nobody. The odds of that happening again are probably zero. But today we have the Internet. You don't need the barber shop. And you don't need to run music. You can run music around the world today. And you can get kids designing Google Maps for medical services that the whole city can use. And there's just no limit now to the kinds of community service projects that, that kids can do. And, and so I'm almost using the barbershop, just as you said, as a metaphor for now it's unlimited. So as weird as that story is, I, I was hoping that it would be seen, frankly, by people like you 
that you don't need technology, you need vision. And once you have the vision, you'll figure out how to get things done. So did your community problem solving through technology class come out of the barbershop experience? It was related. It was, um, I have a city planning degree. So you should, you should know that. Formally, I'm trained um, a, as a city planner. And at the same time, uh, I, I told you about Gary, so it was a year later after this kid broke in, and my roommate is a Harvard Business School professor, as I said, and, and he was really good with this case study methodology. And at Harvard Business School, all students are in a team. You, you don't go individually. You have to be in a study group. And that study group conquers all problems together. So it's very, very collaborative at the Harvard Business School. And problems are based on these complex case studies. So my, my roommate convinced me not to teach programming, that even though it's the only thing that school did, we taught BASIC and Pascal, and we were the very first school to do logo in the world. So my, um, but it was clear to me then that logo wasn't going to be an answer, um, that it was too far removed from uh, the realities of real problem solving. So I, I turned around from, from programming and decided that my roommate was right, that software was coming. So I was probably the first teacher to use BusyCalc because my roommate was working on it and he gave it to me. BusyCalc was the very first spreadsheet in the world. It was designed for the Harvard Business School. So there I am. You know, I got BusyCalc. I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I, and I realized that all my students could get a real client and that we could design a course that kind of combined my city planning, problem-solving background. Oh, and, and since uh, Gary broke in, I, I actually had gone back to school to take some programming classes. So I was, I was pretty comfortable uh, with programming by that point. But I was very influenced by my roommate who said, do not teach programming, teach students how to think. Teach them how to solve any problem a general problem-solving approach and teach them to do it within community. So I'm very influenced by that. I'm, very inf I'm not influenced by programming, thinking that's a dead end, including logo. And I'd be welcome to, to have anybody question that. And, uh, and I was very convinced that we had to teach students to add value to the world. And, and basically, I've been doing that ever since. So Patrick wanted to make sure we started talking about the book. We, we are actually talking about the book. This is sort of the introduction to, that, that Alan gives to some of the, the core ideas of the book. Um, you, you then move to this concept of the digital learning farm, right? And um, yes. well, actually, before we go there, it feels like there's, there are two sort of themes in the book that represent the struggles to get to this digital learning farm one of which consistently throughout the student jobs chapters is this sense of the need to sort of give up a little bit of power, that the, the degree to which the teacher has to feel comfortable you know, giving some power away. But the one that you described in the community solving, problem solving class was that you underestimated how unprepared the students were for this task of identifying problems. So could we look at that first piece there, which is how do students yeah. respond to being given this responsibility, and are there specific ways to help bring them uh, up that, that grade? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I was absolutely stunned. On the first day of class, I announced that I would not be giving students problems, that their, their, their role was to identify community problems and uh, define them and work with a real client. And uh, I would be providing the tools they needed, spreadsheets, databases, graphic design. Uh, we had some other tools by then. And, uh, but the real work wasn't technology. It was identifying a problem. And I'll never forget this. Student in the front row says, uh, Mr. November, excuse me. But uh, we're the students, and you are the teacher, and it's your job to give us the problems. It does not work the other way around. 
and I just stood there realizing that these high school kids, this was a junior and senior, the high school students, and this was a great school system, oh my gosh, this is Lexington, had the highest semifinalists in New England almost year after year. So we're talking about a great district, 20-odd kids in semifinalists and uh, a year. Um, so I was stunned. So I had to figure out that we might have robbed kids' natural ability to take control of defining their own problems by inculcating year after year, spoon-feeding them uh, little tiny problems one at a time, uh, which ended up with students not being able to take the initiative to define their own. But that was a, a sad moment of my teaching experience. So a question has come up in the chat and been commented on about flip, the flipped classroom. If anything, it feels to me like some of your examples are where there is no homework because the classroom experience is so engaging and the students will do on their own what needs to be done. Do you have a feeling about flipped classrooms? Yeah, I think we're going to look back at, at flipped classroom as an intermediary. I happen to like it as a stepping stone to changing the culture of teaching and learning. I, I think flip learning uh, fits into some things we know about video game design with immediate feedback, and it, it, it fits a, a more Socratic um, methodology of, of, of debate of ideas if that's the kind of flip learning you're doing. There's so many different definitions of flip learning that it gets a little sketchy, but the one that, that I like is the one where students debate in class, uh, very Socratic, and uh, teachers give problems, and students work collaboratively. So in a team of four or five kids, you might have a really uh, a kid who excels helping some other kids, um, and the teacher walks around the room really learning a lot more about the learning style of every single student rather than spending time transferring knowledge which moves to the web with videos and, and modeling software and, and some other tools. So at the moment, flipped learning, I think, is the best vehicle we have for creating a small lever for, for some change. So I'm all behind it. I'm, I'm encouraging it. I'm trying to help people get to it. I've been proud enough to work with teachers. I've, I've visited schools. I'm learning everything I can about flip learning um, because I think, I think at the moment it's one of the best levers we have for process change. But is it the answer? No, it's not the answer. So let's go to the digital learning farm. This is a really powerful imagery. Right, about sort of the, the role of authentic contribution, meaningful participation. If you don't milk the cows, you know, you're going to have problems. You're, you're actually participating in a going enterprise. Um, you say that this has been missing yeah. from classrooms and youth yeah. culture for some time. I tried to think about, what, you know, has there actually been a shift or is it just that the web is introducing to us this possibility for authentic participation in a way that really has never been available before? Well, I think the one-room classroom, I mean, think about it. If you're teaching six, seven, eight grades, and you're teaching every subject across that many years, how, how, do, you get a, how do you write a lesson plan for everyone? You, you, you can't. So the reality of a one-room classroom, and I've visited some, is that the older kids are teaching the younger kids. And, and when you talk to teachers in one-room classrooms, it turns out that by teaching younger kids, you actually have to really learn the material. This is the only way for a teacher to survive in a one-room school. And kids also take more responsibility for managing the school and and parents are more involved, and the teacher knows those kids over many years, knows whole families of kids are in the room. So the one-room schoolhouse was, I think, a different culture than we have with graded classrooms where kids did have jobs, and they did make a contribution. They opened the school. They closed the school. Parents might have had a key to the school, and, and they could take care of it. We've, we've lost that. 
Now technology comes along and I think we can restore some of the concept of the one-room schoolhouse and it leads to the farm where, where children used to be so critical on the farm uh, uh, where they would also learn perseverance and problem solving. You know, you've got to fix everything if you're on a farm. Uh, there's no disciplines. It's all, all blended together. So my sense is that that technology, ironically, the tractor combine, as I explained in the book, destroyed the need for children to contribute to the dominant economy that this country was founded on, an agricultural economy. And now we have technology that I think can restore the natural uh, opportunity of kids to do real, closer to real work. So uh, Sylvia Talasano might be on this um, webinar, and there's other teachers I know who frankly taken the idea a lot further. And there are classrooms where every student has a job. Now, you could criticize that teachers are defining those jobs. And you could say that's not enough, that students ought to be defining the jobs. Well, they are. In, in a number of classrooms, students are inventing jobs as well as teachers. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a process where you sort of figure out, okay, one, can students, have we underestimated students' ability to contribute? Two, can we redefine their roles generally? Can we give them powerful tools to be able to do some really interesting things? Like, as I said in my book, create a database for the handicapped online. Really make powerful contributions. And, and from that beginning, I think we can have deeper conversations about children taking even more responsibility for defining their own roles. But if you've been inculcated in the system for years and years and years, you just can't say go. You have to help them to discover that sense of freedom and taking more control over your own learning. Okay, so you talk about contribution, purpose, and problem solving. And then you describe the four student jobs that you're going to profile in the book. Tutorial designers, student yeah. scribes, student researchers, and global communicators and collaborators. Uh, one of the things I loved about the student researcher section was the incredible way in which it blended also the digital literacy uh, learning. That you couldn't have student researchers without having real discussions about sort of what you're looking up and, and how valid certain kinds of information are. We're not going to have time to go through each of those four, but are there points that you might want to bring out at a surface level that people would want to dig into in the book? Well, I think one of the, you know, sometimes the simplest ideas lead to amazing things uh, that I would not have anticipated. So, for example, the Daily Scribe, which is really a nothing idea. It just means that on a rotating basis, different students are going to take notes, and the teacher approves them and makes sure they're perfect so that every day students have access to perfect notes that are published. But what, what happened at least in Darren Kurapatwa's math classroom in Winnipeg, is, is that kids begin to talk to kids they've never talked to before. Because some kid writes these brilliant notes, and kids go up and thank kids for, for, for making things more clear than the teacher did. And all of a sudden, it changes relationships. Now kids are valuing one another who might not look like them or sit at the same lunch table. So it has this... Uh, this wonderful um, spin-off of strengthening uh, students' respect of one another. So it starts off as one thing, but, but frankly, I think students respecting one another and really supporting one another is, is a lot better than the original concept of the Daily Scribe. So I just love that when, when you see these wonderful uh, beneficial spin-offs. Now, the Daily Scribe's not bad either, because students know what good notes look like every day, and they all get better at it. Otherwise, they're, they're not seeing what good notes look like, and they don't get any better at it. So, but all, all of this, and you, may, you might disagree, as I think you indicated in your, in, in your blog, that, that these really aren't transformational ideas. These are, these are small steps. Well, I, I'm going with these steps. I think they're essential. I think they're logical. 
Um, I think it's a it's the beginning of the transfer of more freedom and responsibility to kids. And I think they're practical. They tend to be free, and you can do them tomorrow. So why wouldn't you? What would the argument be against uh, articulating more responsibility for students to contribute to the learning community? I completely agree. I also love the the short vignette in the Darren Kuropatwa story of the student. He goes back and checks a posting from the scribe from the year before and realizes the student on his own time went yes. back and corrected it. Yes. That was lovely. Yes. Okay. No, we've had, in fact, there is, Mike Pennington is on this, on this uh, webinar. Mike Pennington is an amazing teacher. In, I think he's in the book. He's, he's an amazing teacher in Ohio who's had high school kids uh, send a note. He's, Mike's a middle school history teacher. And, and the high school kid sends a note. How many teachers have had this experience where the high school kid says, you know, I've been thinking about that essay I wrote because it's a contribution of a textbook that other students use since, you know, in a, in, a, in a wiki that's explained in the book. And the kid says to the middle school teacher, I'd like to redo my work from middle school because now I know more. And if it's okay with you, I want to redo it. You know, how, how many teachers get that kind of correspondence from a kid they have three years later who feels so responsible for the quality of their work that without any grade, any pressure, they just want to redo what they did in middle school. I love that story. I don't know if Mike wants to chip in on that, but, but go Mike. <laughs> Mike, feel free to raise your hand and we can give you the microphone. Um, in that one-room schoolhouse description, I'm hearing kind of echoes of uh, Sugata Mitra's work and Nicholas Negroponte and Howard Rheingold on peer learning. Do you think that social media is reminding us of how much we actually learn from each other more than sometimes the formal instruction? Well, I happen to think that. I know you think that. You've got all these people in community. Um, but I'm afraid that a lot of schools are blocking Twitter, and, and they're absolutely concerned about blocking Facebook, even though user groups in Facebook and things, everything from calculus to the ninth grade entering class, you know, there's a problem with 13 and under for, for legal reasons. But uh, I think we should be teaching children the high moral ground of, of social media for the very reason that, you know, as a city planner, and, and frankly later, uh, I, you know, I studied developmental psychology, so the combination of those two academic backgrounds for me le leads me to think that human nature is predisposed to be in community, that we want to be in community. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and we want to contribute, and we just need the opportunity. So my, my sense is that as we go one-to-one, -one, although I don't think we should call it that, I think we should call it one-to-the-world for some of the very same ideas you're, you're suggesting, but if we went one-to-the-world, I would love to see technology bring a deeper sense of community, even though lots of people think that technology is actually hurting uh, social interaction. But I, I see it in the opposite way, as long as it's good design. So one of the interesting statistics we've heard this year is the small number of U.S. citizens who travel abroad on exchange programs. It's something under 2,000 yes. students a year versus something over 20,000 who come from other countries to visit the United States. Our sense has been on the show that there's some fear associated with that, sort of a, a worry that your kids would go off to another country, you know, kind of the, the fear of what that, what that might lead to. Is that the same kind yeah. of fear, do you think, that sort of circumscribes or constrains sometimes the use of social media? And is it sometimes the parents? I don't know that it's fear. I think it's arrogance. Uh, I'll I give an example. Um, I went to Harvard, and when I was a student at Harvard, nobody could leave. You had to stay there four years. Uh, you were discouraged from uh, going on any uh, overseas exchange. You, you had, now, I was a graduate student, but the undergrads, they had to stay. And it wasn't until Larry Summers became president not so long ago, uh, I, I might add, 
uh, last decade that he said, no, we need you out. We need you out of this country and experiencing uh, other, uh, other, other cultures and other methods of learning. So if, our top, if, some, of our, if some of our top leading uh, universities were discouraging uh, exchange programs, I, I don't think Harvard's the only one. I think lots of schools think that they're in the best position to provide education for their kids. So I don't know that it's fear. I don't think it's fear. I think it's arrogance. So you could say that, that, that that's part of fear, but I, I think more specifically it's arrogance that this country has the best education and you should be here and we can give it to you. Okay, we're going to go about 10 more minutes and then switch to audience Q&A. Mike, keep your hand up if you don't mind so we can, we can bring you in right at the beginning of that. Um, I want to cover a couple of other topics in the book fairly quickly, one of which is thank you for the shout out about librarians. Are they cheering you everywhere you go? It, it feels like we don't hear enough about the role of librarians. Oh, I did a webinar today for the Texas Library Association. I, I, I should send you my PowerPoint set. Uh, the whole thing, hour and a half of how librarians ought to be leading. So if you don't think of one-to-one -one as technology, but you think that you're really buying the Internet, because that device isn't any good without the Internet, and that the real revolution is information and global communication, not technology. I think we ought to drop technology planning committees and turn them into information, global communication, learning results committees. And if you take that model, then the librarian absolutely should be part of the top leadership team. Librarians in the information business, um, I think libraries should be global communication centers. They should be places where librarians are helping kids create and publish content. I think librarians should, could be helping teachers develop uh, professional global learning networks for their own personal growth. Um, you know, we need librarians more than ever. Now, the problem with what I just said is all librarians are not equal. The, the irony is you've got amazing librarians like, like my friend uh, Shannon Miller or, or, or Joyce in the, you know, in the Jersey, Valenza. You've got incredible librarians who absolutely are crafting the way. And then, frankly, you have some other librarians who I can't figure out are, are, are fearing the loss of their books. So as, as long as... You know, <laughs> we have the right kind of librarian. I think librarians ought to be leading. We've had David Lurcher on the show a couple of times, and uh, his conceptions around uh, the learning commons are so powerful. And, and it, at the same time, a lot of yeah. us experience this, hearing our friends say derogatory things about librarians, realizing they don't really know the depth of what's taking place. Okay, again, quickly, because we're running close to time here. I love the William Cook quote. Truly educated people of the next century will not apply for a job, they will create their own. This seems to me to be right. so important, right, this idea that even if you're working right. for somebody else, students have to learn to be able to be proactive enough to be their own creators. Do you want to mention that at all? Yeah. Well, that goes back to my original, you know, computer science class in 82, uh, where students are crafting their own consulting business, um, you know, adding value to the world figuring out how to be organized and provide uh, service, customer service, and, and promote their work. Um, I am concerned that uh, we're not teaching entrepreneurial skills in school, that we're not giving enough, um, that we're spoon feeding, as, as I'm sure you might agree, uh, the answers. Uh, so my sense is yes. And I think we've underestimated young children. My, I got a friend. Uh, Kathy Cassidy in, in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, who teaches first graders to tweet. Because I think Kathy knows that you've got to start very, very young teaching children that they ought to be communicating globally. Because one day, they, they might have to promote an idea or a concept, and you want to have them prepared to have global communication skills. So my sense is this is not about high school or middle school. This starts in kindergarten and first grade crafting this, this natural entrepreneurial spirit, um, kids working with kids around the world, adding value, debating and questioning, seeing that they're more than capable of, of, of working with people from different cultures, 
So by the time they are older, there's no limit. They, they see opportunity for themselves all over the world. And I'm concerned that the school system we've inherited doesn't give children that opportunity. And unless we change something like entrepreneurial skill as a value, adding technology is going to have very limited impact. So, Tim, in the chat, so please do raise your hand when we get to the q and I'd love to hear that question. Alan, does the job argument kind of reflect the larger dichotomy in our thinking about school? Meaning you hear this argument that we need to have kids prepared for certain jobs where there's a lack of people in those jobs. And then you also hear what I think I'm hearing you say, which is we need to prepare kids to be entrepreneurial so they can create their own circumstance and create new jobs and new opportunities. Is that the same story that we hear between technology for testing and increased accountability versus technology empowering the students? Are, are we seeing sort of a split in the ways in which we think about schooling that, that almost seem to be getting more sharply distinguished? I'm not sure I understand your question. So let me repeat what I think I understood. Uh, there are some jobs that have to be filled, like uh, network uh, managers. In Detroit, ironically, I've been told, is going begging for high-tech talent in machine industry and network management and because people were trained for the wrong jobs. So there's a certain, certain need of society uh, to fill very specific jobs. Then there's a need to grow the economy significantly we need the people who created those jobs. So it, it looks like in a society like ours, we need two kinds of people. Those who can create jobs, and some people create jobs for tens of thousands of other people, and then people who want to go find their passion, not create a job, but I think it's okay if you didn't create a job. I think that's perfectly fine as long as it's your passion and you feel fulfilled and it's, you know, personal growth. So, so my sense is I don't want to judge one being better th than the other. It's just a question of society having some sense of balance. Um, what concerns me, though, is school is way out of balance, that, that we're an assumption in school that all these kids are going are gonna to apply for a job because of the culture of, of giving them a boss, who manages their work, like you have a job. In fact, if you look at the correlation, the parallels between a job, the teacher's the boss. Teacher owns the learning in a lot of classrooms. So I'm concerned, I'm not concerned that some people should be applying for jobs. I'm concerned that school is way out of balance of what our society needs and what some people, their passion would be creating, given that kind of education. Good answer. Okay, so final question before the Q&A. Uh, you uh, talk about Eric Williams and the uh, event he would, I think is it monthly yeah. event where there's sort of this opportunity to come and learn different technologies. And what I read in that story was that it was really about modeling and that there's this critical yes. piece of yes. uh, teachers modeling learning that, that really goes through all yes. of the things you talk about in the book. Yes. That's right. Yeah, Eric Williams is just an amazing uh, leader, superintendent of York County, Virginia. Uh, and I, I've been to that district a number of times to do staff development. And um, you, you can tell when, when, when an outsider like me walks into a district and you see people having deep conversations about learning, and uh, principals role modeling, uh, you, you know something's going on with leadership that's really making a difference. And the role model, as you point out, I, I think is absolutely essential. And I'm worried that teachers get more staff development than leaders do. I think we spend a lot of time uh, in workshops teaching teachers technology, but, but I worry that the, the missing uh, population has been our leadership team that they haven't benefited from uh, some higher order uh, leadership staff development on how to manage this transition. So the leadership in this country, I think, is in the worst position. 
they're caught in a transition of, of being trained to maintain a system, which is how they're being trained at university, to being caught in this, you know, transition to digital where culture's changing, but they haven't been formally or informally educated to manage that change. So until we, until we support those leaders, I, I worry that all the workshops in the world aren't for teachers, aren't being leveraged until the leadership knows how to manage the transition. We had Paul Kimmelman. Part of that being Roma. We had Paul Kimmelman on the show to talk about the school leadership triangle. And as I recall, it's just this terrible burden that the school leader uh, has of sort of pushing back from above all of the expectations and requirements and then supporting and creating a protective environment below. Okay, we're going to move to Q&A. And uh, Mike, I promised you first go here. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. The stories of you in the book are terrific. To turn your microphone on, I'm going to give you mic privileges. To turn your microphone oh, nice. on, and click okay. on the talk button at the top left. All right, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you. It, it's kind of funny. I stepped away, I guess, right when Alan started to mention my voice to put my daughter to bed. And ironically, I had to pull my iPad out of her hands in order for her to go to bed. So I think that fits in well. <laughs> She's three, by the way. Um, but Garth was in here, who's also in the book with me, and uh, oh. he, he was texting me frantically that they mentioned my name. So is there, Mike, is there do you want to give a brief synopsis of what you're doing? Sure. Let me try to do this quick. So uh, six years ago, I was a student teacher with a gentleman named Garth Holman, who's in the room. Uh, and in our time together, he, he teaches uh, for a district that's one-to-one. -one. Um, and Garth had a lot of... Uh, very philosophical ideas about what education could be and what students' role in that education could be. So the two of us in a room, we, we started to hatch plans about um, letting the kids create their own online digital textbook. Uh, the foundations of it were simple. We wouldn't give grades and we wouldn't give points. That the motivation for the book by the kids would be completely intrinsic. That it would be to leave a digital footprint, the idea of helping other students learn and, and kind of showing what they know. Uh, over the next six years, I, I got a job, thankfully, right after student teaching at a district about 40 miles away from Garth. And um, our students at both schools have continued to build on the textbook. Um, we're currently in the middle of a unit right now, uh, Autonomous Mastery Learning WebQuest, I guess, if you want to call it that, uh, that incorporates flipped teaching and uh, DGO bookmarks and Google Docs and Skyping. Uh, and the kids from both these schools participate in the learning together and they keep everything on their own websites. So we really tell them at the beginning, they're published authors. They're owning their learning. They're leaving digital footprints that people are looking at, and, and they're showing the voice of our district. So Mike, I hope you and Garth will reach out to me. I'd like to bequeath to you the wikistoria.com domain name that I own. That this, I always wanted to find somebody who would actually do this justice. Feel free to call on me. Um, Matt, you have your hand raised. If you would like to ask a question, I'm going to give you the microphone now. You can click on the mic, the talk button at the top left of your screen. And we'll, we'll have your mic turned on. And then Larissa, you'll be next. If you have a question you want to put in the chat, uh, folks, please feel free to do so. And I'll try and snag it. If I miss it, please feel free to call it out again. So Matt, I don't see you turning your microphone on. I'm going to go. There you are. But we're not hearing sound from you. So I'm can thinking you, you that your now? mic's not configured. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Go ahead. My question is, we I, I'm in a district in Michigan where we've just implemented a mobile one-to-one -one learning where we've basically purchased mobile devices for our kids to use. Um, and the I, I love everything that Alan's talking about, and I've really tried to do that in the classroom. But the problem that we're having is getting the kids to take that ownership, especially in like the elementary level, of creating, you know, wanting to go out there and pushing themselves to know the content to a level that they need to know it, especially since we're still under the standardized testing and stuff like that. So any any insight or suggestions that you guys might have about that would be very much appreciated. Well, my but I, I can only tell you what I've seen were elementary. Um, 
my sense is that a student work is available for the world to see. And I would, I would point you to Kathy Cassidy's blog. Just type in Kathy Cassidy's blog. You'll, you'll see an example. And um, I think she's in a community that, that, that's similar, um, perhaps, or maybe more rural than, than you are. But she's discovered that when students share their work, they take more responsibility for a global audience than their teacher. She's teaching those kids to tweet. So first graders are tweeting. And they seem that they're, now they're anxious to write because they know that their writing isn't just going for a teacher. Kathy Cassidy has hundreds of people following her Twitter account for her class. So th those are two immediate things I would do. Um, and then I also might get um, some screencasting software and have the kids start designing tutorials for one another. Um, I, I, might, I don't know. You probably have tried all three of those things. You, you can let me know. I took his mic away. <laughs> Matt, feel free to put a right. in the chat if you want to come back. Uh, and Matt, there were also some responses in the chat to you. And to, to see the chat, you can either play the record, the full recording back later, or you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat as a text file. Larissa, I'm giving you the microphone. To turn your microphone on, you click on the talk button at the top left. And if anyone else has a question we're not hearing from Larissa just yet, you can also put your question in the chat. You can let me know if I've missed the question in the chat. Alan, in the book you talk a little bit about some of the parent pushback. Um, yes. What is that and then how does it transform? Yes. I, I think parents um, can, can possibly feel threatened. I mean, parents can feel threatened when a school goes one-to-one. -one. Kid brings home a computer and the parent doesn't know when should the kid play games and what are they doing with flip learning? And so I, I think I think there's some stress in the parent community, uh, obviously depending on the community, around any change that has to do with digital content. But um, I've been persuaded by by people like Greg Green and Clintondale High School in Michigan and and others that you got to bring parents in. You got to bring in your worst critic, and and ideally. They come in with some other parents because there's civility in groups, I've been told. And parents actually watch what, what's going on in a classroom. Because I think the unknown is scarier than the known. And, and Greg Green, where, where every teacher's gone to flip learning in that high school, uh, has managed that well. And he tells me that when parents see it and they, they see the excitement in their own kids in school, uh, they just go, hallelujah, sorry we bothered you, keep going. Now, that may sound like, you know, sugarcoating it, but, but I, I think that, that can go a long way. I do a lot of parent nights. I've done them all over the country. And I can watch parents come in with fear on their faces, fear that, you know, are we, are we controlling the content our kids are getting? Are we really teaching the basics? And, and by the time, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, that by the time I show parents web literacy and the joy of creating content and the safety of global connectedness and, and how motivating that can be with examples I show, I'd like to think that parents reverse the problem and say, okay, how fast can we do it? But unless we bring parents in the process, I can pretty much guarantee that they're going to show resistance. I can guarantee that. Alan, as our courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. The book is Who Owns the Learning by Alan November. I'm quite certain that uh, you're going to love this book. Well worth the purchase price or find it at a library. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for overcoming the, my own inadequacies and coming on the show. I think it's been a terrific uh, visit with you and really appreciate all that you've done here with this book. Yeah, th thanks for the opportunity. By the way, can a number of people in that book, if not everyone, um, we'll actually be at my summer conference giving workshops at, at, called BLC, and you can uh, get more information at novemberlearning.com with that.
you're going to have to take my word for it because it's not letting me type it in, but it's novemberlearning.com. Thanks to Alan. Thanks to all of you for attending. Don't miss uh, Paul Thomas tomorrow on Poverty and the Corporate Takeover of Education, then Gina Bianchini on Mighty Bell, and Maurice Gibbons and Michael Fullen at the end of the week. Thanks to Al. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Thank you.